Hello everybody, good morning and welcome. It is so good to be with you looking at the Bible together. Uh, we are in the book of Genesis and we're doing a series of messages uh, under the title, The Promise Endures. Today we are in Genesis chapter 31, Genesis chapter 31, and we're starting from verse 17. Genesis 31, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. If you're new here, my name's Joel, and uh, it is so good and a real privilege and a joy for me to, to be with you today looking at the Bible together. Thank you for being with us. Let's look at the passage of Scripture together. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out whatever is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offence? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, 
I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Well, there are two main things that I want us to see uh, from this story in Jacob's life today. First of all, something about the real home that he longs for. And I believe all of us in some way share a longing for this real, true home that our hearts crave. And secondly, I want us to see something of the, the real enemy, the true enemy that we would confront as we seek that true home, or as we find the home uh, that, that this passage seems to speak of. Let's start with the, this idea of a, a real home, a true home. Let me remind you of a couple of years ago, when, when, when COVID first started, when we first had the first lockdown, uh, the Queen broadcast a, a, a very kind of comforting statement to the country. You may remember it. Uh, I guess in the spring or summer of 2020, she famously used the phrase, we will meet again, we'll meet again. And uh, many of us, our ears pricked up. If you are British, if you have any sense of uh, a kind of memory of British tradition, it was reminiscent of a song from the 1940s by Vera Lynn, We'll Meet Again. And uh, it was sung during the Second World War. It was a kind of uh, a song filled with hope about what will happen in the time after the war, when we'll be able to say goodbye to all this sorrow and meet again. And we'll meet again one sunny day, as she sang. Now, the Queen was basically cleverly using that, that part of our shared national heritage and imagination and drawing it to good use to help us find hope at another time of pressure and sorrow and division from one another in the first big lockdown. And that is what will happen in societies and cultures often. A wise leader or teacher will sometimes use a story that is shared by the society. They remember it in their kind of shared imagination and they will weave it back into a present situation somehow in a kind of sometimes quite a subtle way. Now, what I want us to see is that a story about Two brothers, two sons, where the youngest son has gone away to a distant land with the inheritance, which he's taken unfairly. And now he's finding his way. He's journeying back to the land of his childhood with this kind of 
tail between his legs, kind of in shame. A story like that told to a Jewish audience in the first century would have definitely reminded them of the story of Jacob. Jesus actually told a story. Some of you remember, it's probably the most famous story Jesus told, you can find it in Luke chapter 15, of exactly that. A son who squandered his, his father's inheritance, wasted it on wild living in an effort to find liberty and independence, instead of which he found sorrow, he found shame. He, he even found himself caught up in a different kind of bondage and captivity where he'd gone looking for liberty and a chance to express himself, he instead found famine and exhaustion and got to the kind of ignoble position of feeding pigs and even being jealous of the food the pigs were eating. And it gets to this beautiful point in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus describes him and says, he came to his senses. He came to himself even in the, in the original language. He came to himself and thought, what am I doing here? I should go back to my own land, to my own father. And it's kind of, it's kind of hard to imagine Jesus' audience not thinking immediately. This sounds a little bit like the story of Jacob. And of course, when we look at the story of Jacob, we do see something of that. We see a restless young man who's thrown off the hindrances of his family background, thrown off the limitations of, of his mother and father and his older brother especially, to escape, to find his own freedom and opportunity and independence. But lo and behold, he's actually ended up in the, in reality, worse captivity under the tyranny, effectively, of his, of his uncle Laban. And we've been learning over the last few weeks about how he's been mistreated, how he's been tricked and conned and kind of subjugated by Laban all this time. And he's finally come to this point of thinking, this, I've got to go back. I've got to return home. And it's interesting to me that even, even his uncle seems to see what's going on in the heart of Jacob. When he, he says to him in, in verse 30, now you've gone your way because you longed greatly for your father's house. Laban understands something that's in the heart of Jacob. He sees in him this restlessness, there's a longing, and it's, there's a longing that can't be fulfilled in any other way except for him to find his true home. There's something special about Jacob. There's something special about his family, about his father and his grandfather and about the, the home, the promises that God made him when he was a boy and about how he needs to go back there to fulfil his family destiny. Laban, weirdly, the outsider, seems to know almost more than Jacob at this stage of the story. Jacob, deep down, is restless but restlessly longing for something he doesn't even understand. And as such, he's very much an example of us all. We, we all go through lives kind of discovering often on a sort of a, a sort of a serial occasions, like just one after another, how none of the apparent sources of freedom and independence that we crave can quite deliver. We might leave behind the, the restrictions of maybe our, our, literally our parents. We might leave home in a hurry. We might leave home anxious to escape. We might leave home with frustration. I just want to get away. I just feel so restricted by my family. I just want to get out there, get out and get away from my hometown maybe. Maybe that's 
your story. You fled, you left, you left in a hurry. You left, you left maybe abruptly, slamming a door behind you, as it were. Not with any sense of, of proper transition, but to, just to get away. But what you got away into didn't deliver as promised. It, it wasn't the, the joy and the, the freedom that you wanted. In fact, it may have led you into other kinds of bondage, into addictions, into debt, into abusive relationships. You, you found yourself caught up in things thinking, what was I thinking? What I left behind was better than this. What I left behind was, this, this is not what I thought it would be. And I guess Jacob must have had those thoughts in his life. And I guess in a way, even on a social level, societies can go through that. A whole community, a whole culture can decide apparently with a sense of enlightenment and growing into maturity, to leave behind restrictions of kind of co conventional morality. We, you know, we threw off, for example, back in the 1960s, some of the kind of um, traditional ideas of family and sexual relationships and abandoned it freely, confident that we were going to have a much better society because of the sexual revolution that we entered into. And now it is, you know, generations later in the 2020s that people like uh, Louise Perry's writing, written a book on the failure of the sexual revolution because what, what it actually brought on in many ways was more uh, captivity, more oppression of people, which we wouldn't have seen at the time because we're, we're so easily enamoured by the, the glossy and the exciting and we don't see that what we could be marching towards will bring us into further oppression. This is our story individually and socially in so many ways. To the point where we can end up becoming just jaded and cynical, thinking, what is the point of even looking for satisfaction? What is the point of even striving after it? Why do, why do we even imagine that there's such a thing as contentment? Because whenever I lift up my, my heart to find it, whenever I pursue it, I end, end up being disappointed. It feels like there's no crock of gold at the end of the rainbow, really. This is always just a mirage. The longings, the desires I have within me for a sense of fulfilment, for a sense of spiritual home, they're just kind of there to trick me. It's like some evolutionary glitch. Why, why do I crave and long for something which surely isn't really there. I wonder if that's how you've been feeling. I wonder if you've got to the point of just wondering if there's even any real answer after all, any real home for your soul. But I want to encourage, I want to dare you to think otherwise because even just thinking about it rationally, why would that desire be there if there was no ultimate fulfilment for it? The other desires that you have seem to have some kind of quarry, purpose, goal in them. That's, that's achievable. Let me quote uh, C.S. Lewis for a change. Some of you, you, you're thinking, oh, he's back. We're back with C.S. Lewis. I quote C.S. Lewis a lot, and, and it's, it's your fault, because obviously if you read his books, I wouldn't have to keep quoting him to you. So if you just jolly read his books for yourself, then it wouldn't happen. And uh, so then we'd all be happy. Just think about that. Okay, let me just read what he has to say in his book, Mere Christianity, which you should read. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. The longings that you can become so effective, so grabbed by, that they'll even draw you back to church. And that's why some of you are here today, I reckon. That's why Jacob is prepared to think of going home. Of all the things, <laughs> Jacob would never have thought of going back. He knows what there is at home. He knows what waits for him. He's, he's conned his brother. He's got bad stuff. There's bad blood back there. But nevertheless, his fear of his brother Esau becomes inferior to the drive away from his current experience of oppression. What he went looking for has turned into a nightmare and it means he's prepared to even consider going back home. And some of you, you've even decided to come back to church. You've even decided to come back to Christian things, to the Bible, to, to Jesus, or at least to investigate Jesus, to look at Alpha maybe, because you're thinking, nothing else. All right, okay, I'll come to the bottom of the list. And I will consider him. I will consider this. And I want to say, well done. I mean, you, you, you've... You've no idea how exciting that is. Because this, this story, what this tells is of a, a God, a real God, who has chosen in love and kindness to break in to human affairs, to our lives, to liberate, to truly set us free, to bring us into his land, his home, his promised place, to bring us home. The story the Bible keeps telling is one just like this one of Jacob escaping from Laban to go home. The children of Israel in the next book of the Bible escaping from Egypt to go home. And each time it's God that intervenes, God that rescues, God that delivers, God that brings liberty. The whole book is about that. Ultimately, it keeps telling that story until it tells it. I mean, these are just dress rehearsals. The Laban story, the Pharaoh story, they're just dress rehearsals for the real Exodus. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in, in Luke chapter 9, Moses himself and Elijah stand next to him. And it says in, in that passage in Luke 9, it says, they discussed with him the Exodus that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. They, Moses is saying, yeah, I took all the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's clutches, out of slavery, into the promised land. But your exodus, what you're going to do, you're the real Moses, Jesus. <laughs> you're the one that's going to bring them into the real exodus to cut them free from slavery to sin and death and futility and meaninglessness and addictions and abuse and horror and suffering of the soul of all kinds. Jesus came to break us free from the worst of slaveries and to set us up liberated and to say to us in John's Gospel, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus is the great liberator who brings us home to his eternal home.
That's what he came to do. That's what the whole book is about. It's what he dreams of accomplishing in our lives. He came announcing it, his first public sermon in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the captives, to preach deliverance to the captives. This is what he's come to do. And so when we look at the story of Jacob, we're kind of looking at the story of ourselves, looking at the, the story of a God who breaks into rescue from tyranny, from bondage, from slavery, from captivity. And in your life, I wonder what this might mean. I wonder what it might mean even today. And let's, let's, let's go further with this, because like I say, there are two things to see. One of them is the, the real home, the real place of safety, the real belonging place that we've been provided for in Christ. But there's also information here in the story about the real enemy. The real enemy. And this is relevant to every single one of us, especially if you already are a Christian. And most of us listening to this, I'm sure you are. If you already are a Christian, I think, well, yeah, I've already been liberated. Thank you. Thank you for this first quarter of an hour. But it's mostly been for people who aren't like me, who don't already, aren't already Christians. Well, listen, because look at what happens as Jacob escapes from the clutches of Laban and he takes his family and his goods and he strives to get home and he travels and he breaks camp and he does this daring thing. Does Laban just let him go? Did Pharaoh just let the children of Israel go? No, he pursued them. He chased them. Laban chases Jacob. And you need to understand you have an adversary who will pursue you. There, there is no emancipation without conflict. R.T. Kendall says. That's a good way of putting it. No one ever gets liberated from sin and the law of sin and death without having to occasionally face it nevertheless because the, the, the old master comes after us. The conflict can continue. There is, there is still an enemy and he does pursue. He doesn't yield so easily as we might hope that he does. We have to understand this. And I, I want you to understand this. I'm so often struck, especially for people who recently become Christians, by the fact that we can be surprised. We can find it strange. We can seem totally perplexed by the sheer reality of ongoing adversity, ongoing attacks and challenges from our spiritual enemy, who is a real person. Maybe, maybe the fact that we don't see him as a real person is a problem. We see the devil as a cartoon character, fictitious, medieval, foolish, asinine, childish. Who would take that seriously? Well, you should. The Bible tells you to. Peter says in the New Testament, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is active. He's busy. You may not be, but he is. He's pursuing you. How? To bring you down, to reclaim you into his enslaving clutches. That's his way. That's who he is. That's what he's like. That's what he'll do. And so for us to be on guard means to look at his ways, to, to understand his wiles, to think, what are the ways that he tries to grab me? How does he do this? And thankfully, we have stories like this story of Jacob and Laban to see it. Because yet Laban is not the devil. OK, I get that. But Laban is actually a type here. And Laban is, in fact, 
not just a type of the devil, Laban here is effectively a kind of machine. He's like a tool. He's like a, an, an agent. It's a little bit like a, a, a proxy war. In fact, I would say it is a proxy war. You know what I mean by a proxy war? Where you have, during the Cold War especially, in the decades of conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States, there was never any point right from the 1940s to the end of the 80s where the two parties came into direct conflict. They didn't exchange blows in that sense, but there were wars going on between them all the time. But they were done on proxy battlefields through proxy agents. It was done on the borders of North and South Korea or in Afghanistan or in Angola or in Cuba. It was other smaller countries that were armed, supported, and became kind of puppets and agents of the big agents of war. And it's kind of like that through the Bible. You see that the devil picks on the people of God, but he does it through a Pharaoh, through a Goliath, through a Jezebel, in this case, through a Laban. He comes at Jacob and he'll come at you. He'll sometimes come directly. He'll come through agents, even people, even dare I say it, sometimes people close to you. And, and you have to learn to understand, to discern and to respond wisely to his pursuit, his way with you. There is no emancipation without conflict. So what he does is he pursues and he, we were told that he would. The Bible is set up as a conflict, even from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And how does he do it? He does it primarily by accusing, by accusing us. That's the main means, it seems, by which he attacks us. It's kind of dominant. It's even his name. Did you know the name Satan means the accuser? That's who he is. He will accuse you, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, day and night. He ever lives to accuse those who belong to Jesus Christ, the, the brothers, the sisters, those who know Christ. He keeps at it. He's persistent with it and he's very good at it. And so to be watchful, to be wise, to be smart, to be militarily astute, is to be aware of his accusing ways. Jacob here, it's interesting that he says in verse 31, he kind of gives away his weakness when he says to Laban, I was afraid of you. Laban says, what have you done? You run away with my daughters. Jacob says, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you trick me? Jacob says, well, I was afraid of you. That's interesting. Jacob, it seems to me, is still learning what it means to stand in the favour of God. Jacob's still learning what it means to face his accuser, face his attacker, in the security of the promises of God, under the favour of God. Jacob has not yet learned to do that. He's still on a journey here, and so am I, and so are you. I I'm learning this. I've been a Christian 42 years nearly, and I'm still learning that I'm still a bit afraid of my accuser. When my accuser comes at me, I'm way too quick to listen to him, way too quick to allow him to set the agenda, to set the conversation, to even begin a conversation. And I need to learn, like Jacob needs to learn, like you need to learn what it means to grow in maturity, which doesn't mean to live some kind of 
religiously perfect life in some pseudo pretense of spirituality. It means actually to, to stand in the promises of God, to stand secure, trusting God, so that even when I make mistakes, not if, but when, even when I sin, not if, but when, I don't buckle, I don't fall into despair, I don't become convinced that I'm no longer a child of the king or I'm, I'm useless, there's no point in me even trying. I remember again the promises, I'm free from accusation. Jacob's still living to some extent under the fear. And look at the way he does his accusing. Let's, let's look at the style. He accuses us with lies, right? When you look at verse... 27, this is very, very helpful. Okay, this is his style. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? That's a lie. <laughs> Laban has no intention of sending him away nicely. The reason that Laban is pursuing Jacob with his kinsmen <laughs> for seven days is not so that they can ha so he can get his kiss his grandchildren in verse 28 and why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters as well it's lies this isn't Jake, uh, Laban's real concern he's come with intent he's come with malicious intent otherwise why would God not why would God have to warn him why would God have to intervene if Laban's motives were so pure as the driven snow no, we know better. We know that Laban really is malicious. I mean, he must be malicious. He says he would have brought tambourines. And that's sinister, if you ask me. That's like, I'd rather, you'd rather he came with petrol bombs than tambourines. So, yeah, we, we, you get the idea. Laban, Laban is not a good guy here. Laban is bringing deceptive. And understand, friends, the enemy that you of your soul will lie he will use lies against you. He will, use, he will say things against you that aren't actually true. And you, if you're not watchful, you'll start to take it seriously. You'll start to come under the authority of untruth and deception. And he'll also scorn you. Look at what happens in verse 28 or the second half of verse 28. He says, you have done foolishly. Foolishly. There, there you go. It's just, it's a... Willful personal attack. It's abuse. You've done foolishly. Foolishly. He's attacking him. Attacking his sense of dignity. Attacking his sense of... of Jacob's got to come under that. Jacob, I presume, has lived under that for years. Being told by his uncle, foolish, foolish. You've done foolishly. Do you ever feel foolish in the eyes of the world? Do you ever feel foolish for following Jesus? Do you ever feel that you were a fool to become a Christian? You were a fool to get baptised? You've been fooled into taking the Bible seriously? Oh, foolish. It seems foolish. The world is good at this. The devil is good at using the world to attack our sense of dignity. Fool. Fool for following Jesus. But the patient, wise, discerning child of God learns to remember when they were really a fool. Because if you are told you were a fool when you chose to follow Jesus, the truth of the matter is that was the first wise thing you ever did. It was actually the opposite. It was all that came before that was foolish. Wisdom, wisdom, which will be proved one day, will be shown, will be vindicated one day, was when you trusted and obeyed Jesus Christ. 
Learning to turn the tables is important. Don't respond to the scorn of the enemy. Don't allow it to intimidate you into cowardice and unbelief. And then finally, the lies, the scorn, and there's victimhood. Did you notice that? Victimhood, there in, in verse 43, the way again Laban speaks, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have born? He's dripping with self-pity. This guy's just trying to play the violin for Jacob and get him to crack under the strain of pathos. Oh, I've done my uncle such a sorrow. I'm such a terrible man. How could I do this to my poor, innocent father-in-law? Get real. There's nothing innocent about Laban. It's all, it's, it's the weaponizing of victimhood. You've really hurt me. This will happen. And this is how the enemy will use his, his proxy agents. You can sometimes step on something by, by, by realising that by following Jesus, you will come across as really hurting people. Oh, you've really hurt me. And the hurt becomes the sovereign matter in the situation. How could you do that? How could you say you've really hurt me? And a sensitive, humble, pure-hearted person will find it very hard to argue with that. Oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. How can I fix? I'm so sorry. We can become subservient in a completely wrong way to manipulation. Don't do that. Ask God for grace and strength to not do that. It's not easy to not do that. But friends, we live especially now in an age where victimhood is weaponized. It's used. And if you can claim victimhood status in a situation, you can become the authority quickly, but still somehow give the impression that you're a weak victim. It's fascinating. We need to be wise to it. Don't yield to people playing the victim card. And definitely don't yield to the devil playing the victim card through people. But this is the thing to watch for before we move on really quickly as I close. He doesn't just accuse through lies. He doesn't just accuse through scorn. And he doesn't just accuse through victimhood. He even accuses through the truth. See, the tough thing for Jacob is that Laban does actually have the goods on him. Laban does know that Jacob is not a good guy. Jacob's not guiltless. We know that, right? We've been looking at his life. <laughs> Jacob has tricked him. He says, why have you tricked me? He did. He tricked him. He wasn't frank with him. He didn't do the right thing. He didn't say to Laban, right, I'm leaving. I'm taking your daughters and I'm going. Bye. He didn't do it. He snuck out behind his back. He was not frank with his uncle. He wasn't. And Laban, in a sense, has got a right to accuse. And what do we do there? What do we do there if the enemy of our soul has got the goods on us? And wow, does he? I mean, he really does. He knows things about you. You wouldn't want anybody to know. He knows it. And he knows how to dig in deep and sharp and attack you with it. Night and day, he accuses us. How do we keep our nerve under that pressure? It's one thing to resist lies, but how do you resist the truth about ourselves? Ultimately, we don't, because ultimately we can't. What we need is a deliverer. What we need is a rescuer. What we need is the God of rescue who favours us as he favoured Jacob. See, God knows Jacob too. 
But God loves Jacob. God's chosen and cherished and delighted in Jacob from the beginning. Jacob have I loved, the Bible says. Esau have I hated, which is a very strange verse for us. What, God hates Esau? It doesn't mean the way we hate people. It just means that Jacob is the one that God especially cherished and chose and went after. Because Jacob was so lovely and Esau was so naughty. No, no. In fact, we don't know why. We're not given to know why. God never really tells us why. It's one of the mysteries that's not shared with us. It's a hidden thing that belongs to the Lord. Why are you a Christian? Why do you belong to Jesus? Well, it's because I, I chose to. I read my Bible. I came to church and I believe. So it's because I'm such a, you know, I responded. I've got a soft heart. I, I, I put my hand up. I got baptized. No, 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 no. He reached out to you in your sin, in your ignorance, in your rebellion, even in your fleeing from him. He softened your hard heart. He won you to himself. He cherishes you. He loves you. Not for good in you. <laughs> he loves you because, because he loves you. Here's where we find our security. We are favoured, not for good in us. And this is the God who favours, this is the God who judges. I love the way he speaks to Laban. Don't you say anything to Jacob. Do you notice that in verse 24? Don't you say anything, good or bad. I can imagine Laban thinking, oh, I wasn't planning on saying anything good. <laughs> so why does God say that? No, nope, don't say anything good or bad. And Laban's like, yeah, I can do half of that easily. It's the bad. I want to say some bad stuff. Though. And, and, and by the way, you notice Laban gets to say it still. Laban flagrantly disobeys God. And God is patient enough to let Laban do it. Amazing that Laban survives the chapter after totally disobeying God. But nevertheless, he is told, you are not to say anything good or bad against Jacob. Why is that? Because God's job is judge. It's, it's the Lord's job to speak good or bad over you and me. Ultimately, he's our judge, and ultimately, he's the judge of the person sitting next to you, the person you're angry with, the person you dislike, the person you feel bitter towards. He's their judge, he's your judge. Ultimately, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll read it to you. I, I love this passage. This is huge for us uh, at, this, at this juncture of Scripture. He says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord. That's kind of comforting and <laughs> troubling. God says, Laban, hands off. Be quiet. He's mine. I will speak to him. Does that mean that God approves of Jacob's trickery and contracts? No. <laughs> God doesn't approve. He's going to deal with Jacob. He's going to deal with him. He's going to pick a fight with him in the next chapter. We'll come to that. God, God loves Jacob enough to help him, to grow him. He's determined. He's got plans. He's going to make him a prince. Prince. He's going to name him prince. Prince with God. God looks at Jacob in all of his mess, all of his running, all of his crazy life. And he says, I love and I've chosen and I have destiny for you. I, I speak no evil over you. I will not allow others to judge you. I've got plans for you, Jacob. The God of favour, the God of true judgment, and the God, finally, of true covenant. Look at this 
this way. Even, even I love the way Laban tries to solve the problem with a covenant. You may have just got to that last verse and wonder what goes next. Come now, says Laban, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. The rest of the chapter is a description of how they made covenant. It's quite specific and detailed, descriptive. A lot of detail we, we can't get into today. But let me just simply say this. The best that Laban and Jacob to do, could do was a covenant where they wouldn't hurt each other. They made an agreement. They made it. They, they made it with blood, with sacrifice, proper, to stop there being a feud. Good idea. It's better than a feud. You know what a feud is? When families carry on hating and killing each other for generation after generation after generation. There's parts of the world today where that's still the case, where it's dangerous to live there because of family feuds that go on for centuries. That could have happened. Laban and Jacob went one better, said, no, we're going to make a covenant. You can't come this far, can't go that far. We'll kill an animal, we'll sacrifice, we'll say it's done, it's over. That's not so bad. But it's not the new covenant. It's not the new covenant. See, the kind of covenant that you and I would cut is one where we say, okay, God, okay, peace, 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 peace. I will, I will be good and maybe you won't hurt me. That much? That's what the kid did in Jesus' story, Luke 15. Came home to his father, just like Jacob. Peace, peace. Just give me a job in the stables. Give me a job in the back. I'll, 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 work in, I'll, I'll only come in the back door. I'll work with the servants. I, 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 that's all I can have. I'm not worthy to be your son, but just please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. That's the kind of covenant we cut. That's religion. That's what we do. That's every religion under the sun. That's what it's like. It's about us making covenant. A human made covenant. A human arrangement. A human attempt to keep God sweet. Here's what I'll do. Please, please, will that be enough for you to keep you away from me? Because you make me very uncomfortable. What does the father do in the story Jesus told? He doesn't even listen. He doesn't even let the boy finish his arranged covenant suggestion, he just says, my son's returned. Let's throw a party. Quick, music, food, clothes, give him a wash. Let's do everything we can for him. My son, my son. Did you say servant? No, no, no. My son, he's back. He's overwhelmed with joy and great joy. We'll get to see what God thinks of Jacob as the story goes on. God is so pleased. He loves him. Why? Because Jacob is welcomed in the beloved son. He always has been. He belongs not because of his own merit, but because of Christ's merit. It's the same with you. Today, you may be thinking, how do I get to know the real God, my real home and escape my real enemy? How do I have to do what? This, that, the other, what do I do? No, 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 no. It's all been done for you by Jesus through his death and burial and resurrection. Jesus on the cross took your sin and shame and guilt, took it all, dealt with it forever so that you could be welcomed home, <laughs> truly home, truly loved, truly received by the living God, fathered, adopted, cherished. This is what you need. You need him to give you his new covenant, his new arrangement. Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body when he gave bread and broke it with them. When he gave wine and said, this is my blood. This is the blood of a new covenant. It's not on the basis of anything you do. It's arranged all by grace. There's nothing you could do. God did it all on the cross. And how do we escape the accusations of Satan? 
How do we escape the, the horrors of our past and the mess that we've made? How do we come clean and free away from it and into the land, into the future that God has for us? Through Christ, through Jesus. Maybe some of you today for the first time will do that. Come to the table, take bread, take wine as a new disciple. I'm sure the site leaders will help you to understand what that means. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son, all that he means to us. We praise you, we celebrate his work today. In Jesus' name, amen.